I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Is 2021 the beginning of the end for America's prime position as a world superpower? With the fallout from Afghanistan continuing to damage Biden's reputation at home and abroad, the UK is not the only country questioning their relationship with the USA. My name is Stephen Edgington, and today I'm joined by the journalist Glenn Greenwald to discuss America's decline, where Biden went wrong, and why even the left-wing press have turned against their president. Are you surprised that Joe Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan has led to chaos and humiliation for America? Not surprised at all. The entire 20-year war has actually been nothing but, or very little beyond chaos and defeat and humiliation. A lot of that has been covered up by the fact that the media tends to ignore anything that doesn't happen in Kabul, even when things do happen in Kabul, if it doesn't serve the narrative that the United States is winning, it has gotten a lot less media attention. But it was three successive presidents, Obama, Trump and Biden, all of whom campaigned on a promise to leave Afghanistan because overwhelming majorities of Americans have been saying for more than a decade that they want out of this war, that they know that the United States is not winning. And when you lose a war, the withdrawal is, of course, going to be incredibly messy. It's going to involve the loss of life. It's going to involve um, all kinds of defeats. But the prior 20 years, we have to remember, also resulted in a huge number of lost lives of Afghan civilians, of American and British and NATO service members. So in a way, this ending is kind of a fitting coda for the 20 years that preceded it. But the way that he withdrew without withdrawing the civilians first, by withdrawing the military, by closing down the airbase, it's led to absolute catastrophe, don't you think? Surely there was a better way of doing this. You say, sure, there was a better way to do this. On the one hand, I can agree with you because there's always a better way to do something, especially with 2020 hindsight. Virtually nothing is perfect, especially as comp- something as complex as withdrawing from a dangerous war zone. But I think we need to remember the reality of what happened prior to the withdrawal itself, which was that the position of the U.S. government and NATO governments was that when withdrawal took place, the Taliban would not overrun the country. And the reason they claimed that that was true was because they had confidence in the Afghan government and in the Afghan National Security Forces, which they had been training and arming and building for the last 20 years, that they would be able to ward off the Taliban. So imagine if, while claiming that, the U.S. was simultaneously mass evacuating huge numbers of people, not just Americans, but also allies in Afghanistan beginning in April or May or June. Imagine the signal that that would have sent about the fact that the U.S. really doesn't trust and didn't trust the Afghan government. And it was President Ghani and that Afghan government that no longer exists that was imploring Biden not to evacuate on the grounds that if you do, it's going to make clear that you don't really believe in us. And I can guarantee you that in the alternative reality where Biden was withdrawing Americans and Afghan allies through May and June and July, that had he been doing that and then the Taliban took over, 
the argument would have been from a lot of people that the takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban was Joe Biden's fault because by evacuating everybody months earlier, he sent the signal to the Taliban, to Afghanistan, and even to the Afghan security forces that the United States didn't really believe in their abilities. And it was that signal that caused a Taliban takeover. So I think it was a case where he was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. Isn't the point, though, that the intelligence community and the military community massively underestimated the Taliban and completely overestimated the ability of the Afghan army and the morale of the Afghan army to continue fighting? And that has led to these people dying, including American servicemen and many, many civilians in these awful terror attacks that we've seen recently. So surely isn't it, the problem is with the intelligence establishment completely getting this wrong. Yes, I think it's a, the question you raise is a very important one. And the assumption embedded in your question may very well be right. The only question or doubt that I would raise about that narrative is whether this was really just a good faith mistake about the strength of the Afghan army and the Afghan police and the security forces in general, because I think we need to remember in Vietnam, as we all know, because of Daniel Ellsberg's leaking of the Pentagon Papers for a decade, the U.S. government was assuring Americans, oh, don't worry, we're making great progress, we're on our way to winning the war. And internally, they were saying exactly the opposite. We're on the run from the Viet Cong. The best we can hope is for is a stalemate. That was what the Pentagon Papers revealed was not an intelligence failure, but deliberate disinformation by the American government to the citizenry to keep support for the war high. In 2019, not some obscure left-wing site, not Noam Chomsky, but the Washington Post published what they called the Afghanistan Papers, obviously modeled after the Pentagon Papers, which basically said the same exact thing, that all these years under Obama and Trump, when political and military leaders were saying, oh, these Afghan national security forces are making great progress, they're becoming a real fighting force, we're going to be able to soon leave Afghanistan in their hands internally, They all knew that it was a joke, that they were half of them or more were addicted to drugs, that you they they waited around until payday and then disappeared, that they really didn't believe in what they were fighting for, which is a very corrupt government based in Kabul that didn't care about the country, that cared about maintaining a sort of Dubai lifestyle. And you could talk to and people did talk to an interview throughout 2021 you know, kind of commanders on the ground or veterans of Afghanistan who were saying there's no such thing as the Afghan National Security Forces. So whether Joe Biden stood up on July 8th and said, I believe the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan is very unlikely because he just was misinformed by the intelligence community or whether he knew it wasn't true but felt he had to say it, in order to make withdrawal politically palatable, because imagine if he had told the truth and said, we're leaving Afghanistan, even knowing that within days or weeks, the Taliban is going to overrun Afghanistan, how much harder politically it would have been to withdraw. Right now, I don't think we know. But what I know for sure is that there's a lot of evidence in the public domain that showed that nobody really believed that the Afghan National Security Forces was a competent fighting force to ward off the Taliban both in terms of capacity and will. It's funny you say that because I remember just a few years ago, I was speaking to one of my family members who served in Afghanistan, and he was telling me that the Afghan army, all of the things that you're saying, the Afghan army were a complete disaster, that they were all high on drugs, they were all trying to sell you drugs. So even someone as lowly as I already knew or had some kind of idea of what the state of the Afghan army. If that is true, if, if it's true that the intelligence community was either hiding from President Biden the truth or that President Biden knew the truth and that the Afghan army would collapse in a very short period of time, surely they would have prepared better than they have done now. And look at the situation. We've seen over 10 US military people you know, die in this awful terror attack. You've seen these terrible images on our screens and on CNN and of people fleeing the airport and people clinging on to American planes and unfortunately letting go and, and, and dying. So these are terrible optics, to say the least, for President Biden. Surely if he knew that this was going to happen, they would have prepared better than this. Yeah. So let me, let me just go back to the first part of what you said, which I think is interesting and important. You know, sometimes I think as journalists, we 
instinctively believe that in order to get the real information, you go to the senior levels of government or military or intelligence community and ignore the kind of lower level people who work inside the government. And often I think the reverse is true. That's when you get propagandized. To know the truth, you go to speak to people like, I think it was your cousin or um, you know, relatives in your family who are who have been in Afghanistan, those those people know the truth a lot more. I think it's really the, the biggest tragedy of all of this is that you did have these brave men and women in the militaries of the United States and of Great Britain and of Europe who were fighting in Afghanistan, believing that what they were being told was true by their own government and risked their lives and died for what in reality was something that was an illusion. And and it's so sad to watch them realize this and the anger that they feel. And it's not the first time that we've ever seen that. As for your broader point that, well, if Biden had really known that this is going to happen, they would have planned better. I think, I think that seems persuasive, right? That, that maybe they knew the Afghan forces were going to collapse, but they didn't think they were going to collapse this quickly. I think, first of all, they were clearly negotiating with the Taliban for going back to Trump. And Trump was saying, and so was Biden, that the Taliban were actually good negotiating partners. They were trusting the Taliban. The Taliban were negotiating rationally in their self-interest, adhering to the promises that they were making, not because the Taliban's moral, obviously, but because they were they were engaged in rational analysis of their self-interest, which was to get the United States and NATO out of Afghanistan as soon as possible so they could take over. So I think they were thought that they could kind of persuade the Taliban not to run into Kabul, to wait a couple of months. I think had U.S., the U.S. and uh, Western forces withdrawn without something as horrific as what we saw yesterday, people would have forgotten about Afghanistan. The Taliban then could have taken, I think they could have, they thought they could kind of finesse that. But the reality is, once the Afghan government, including President Ghani and all the top leadership, saw the Taliban overtaking all those provinces, they just got up and left. There was no more Afghan government, which almost left the Taliban with no choice but to go into Kabul because there was no governing body anymore. There was It was going to be anarchy and chaos, which is what the Taliban didn't want. So I think it's a little bit of both. I think you're probably right that even if my narrative is true, which is that they lied about, you know, the strength of the Afghan National Forces, you're probably right that it stands to reason that if they really knew their Taliban was going to take over this quickly, why would they want something like this to happen? On the other hand, I still haven't heard what the U.S. government could have done better to prevent this. Like, I, you know, I know all the critiques keep uh, Bagram Airfield open, but, you know, that's two hours away on very dangerous roads from Kabul. It's not that easy to get people to the to Bagram Air Force base. When you have a small fighting force and you've promised the Taliban that you're going to leave by May 31st, and they're saying, if you don't honor that agreement, it's going to be all open warfare again. I'm not really sure what you can do to prevent withdrawal. That's the point. The U.S. lost the war in Afghanistan. And when you lose a war, withdrawal is inherently going to be ugly and chaotic. My first question was about your whether you were surprised by the events in Afghanistan. I want to ask about the reaction of the sort of commentariat in the United States and even to a certain extent in the United Kingdom and their reaction to Joe Biden's presidency in general. And, you know, Afghanistan is just one example of where perhaps Joe Biden has displayed a huge level of incompetence that has taken many people by surprise. Do you think that people are surprised by the kind of chaos that's coming out of the White House at the moment? I mean, there was so much goodwill for Joe Biden, obviously in Europe, but also in sort of the U.S. ruling class because of the level of contempt that had built up over four years, almost to desperation levels about Donald Trump. And Joe Biden was everything Trump wasn't. He was, you know, he's been in Washington for 50 years, whatever else you want to say about him. He knows how Washington works. He's kind of this like steady hand who's never been an extremist about anything. He's always been very moderated. He was part of a government for eight years that Europeans loved, which was the Obama administration. So the expectations were very high and the level of good faith, the, of the goodwill for him was so high that I think you're right that he probably could never have really met that because I think we have to remember that what led to Trump's election in the first place was that for all the admiration people have for Barack Obama as a person, 
you know, like a kind of once in a generation political talent that he was, the U.S. was experiencing enormous problems, some of which might have been his fault, some of which weren't, coming from things like the 2008 financial crisis, the fact that we were involved in these wars that were going on forever that had no clean exit, that people were having, you know, their jobs sent overseas as part of globalism, just like happened in, 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 in England that led to Brexit, people out of jobs or communities devastated. That's the unhappiness that led to Trump. And we kind of forgot about that when we were all focused on Trump's crazy tweets for four years. But Biden walked back into that same country. So I think part of it is that the perception that we had about what America was like pre-Trump, that it was kind of this idyllic, well-governed, happy place was a little bit of a mythology because of how early people were that Trump was gone. You know, I think we have to also take note of the fact that we all are human beings, no matter what our ideology is. And we have very deep instincts. And one of our instincts as human beings is tribalism. No matter how much we try to resist nationalism or anything else like that, you're British, I'm American, that's embedded in our brains from childhood. We all hate seeing our country humiliated, our country defeated, having to retreat against, you know, a force that we've been told for 20 years are like these savage sixth century barbarians. It feels shameful and and humiliating. And so in a way, it kind of overrides our rational faculties about, and I'm not, I'm not exempting myself from this at all. And, you know, I feel like I can understand it because I also am, am human too. And I experience those same emotions, but I think, you know, Western democracy in general was already having a lot of problems. I mean, you guys know that from Brexit. We know that from electing Trump. The country I live in, Brazil, after four straight years of a center-left government, elected someone like Jair Bolsonaro. There's something going on in the democratic world. In France, you see massive protests and, you know, lots of dissatisfaction in every country that I think is much bigger than and precedes Joe Biden. I do want to get on to these bigger, wider narratives because it's absolutely fascinating. But for now, let's stick with Joe Biden's presidency. He ran on a ticket of moderation, of maturity, of stability. He talked about America returning. America is back. How would you assess those kind of promises that he made during the election campaign eight months on from his presidency? You know, this America is back slogan, I think a lot of people read into it what they want to see in it. And it's deliberately vague, as good politicians always are, right? The best politicians can give a speech and allow everybody who hears it to believe that they heard what they want to hear, even though the people who heard it and think that have completely different desires about what they want to hear. That's what a good politician does. And it's what a good political slogan does as well. Obviously, America is back to a lot of people meant that Trump had kind of degraded American leadership in the world. America being this kind of leader of the free world, you know, from the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the superpower that for all its flaws, nonetheless stood for better values, at least than the alternative. But at the same time, the post 9-11 United States, just from a foreign policy perspective, was a real disaster. You know, look at Chinese propaganda. It's propaganda, but there's an element of truth to it where they're saying, you spent $2 trillion over the last 20 years just in Afghanistan and got nothing for it. We spent $800 billion on a high-speed rail that connects every city that helps every person, all 1.4 billion people in China, be more efficient, live better lives. That's the difference. And Biden is somebody who, because he's been around Washington for so long, I think has come to be kind of jaded about this idea that America should be constantly assuming the military and imperialistic burden on behalf of the West. In 2009, he was extremely angry that when Obama got into office pledging to leave Afghanistan, the military manipulated Obama and put him in a box by leaking to the media that All they needed was another 30 to 40,000 troops in Afghanistan and would win in a year. So you had this young anti-war first black president ever who felt very pressured not to have headlines. Afghanistan falls because Obama ignores his military leadership. I feel like Biden was angry that they did that to Obama. He was against the surge back in 2009. 
He pledged to get all troops out of Afghanistan by 2014 in the 2012 vice presidential debate that he engaged in. So I think the signs have been clear for a long time that if you believe America is back meant we were going to be this bold, aggressive military power militarily engaged around the world, that probably isn't what Biden intended. But I think it deliberately left it vague so that whatever your, you know, kind of best image of the United States is that you feel like was degraded under Trump, it kind of became a promise that they were going to fill the best views that you had of, of the United States. And obviously, a lot of people are disappointed because they filled in the gaps that maybe weren't intended. But what about these issues of competence and stability? Because I would argue you've seen the complete opposite from the Biden administration so far. Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of times this whole thing of competence and stability are really just political branding. Was the Obama administration so competent and stable? I would argue no. I mean, Obama's demeanor exuded competence and stability. He's extremely smart, always very cool and analytical, right? There were no crazy tweets, no unpredictable outbursts. So it it presented this kind of ethos of calm and stability and competence. But so many of the things the Obama administration touched beginning with the fallout of the 2008 financial crisis was a complete disaster. I mean, the Congress allocated an enormous amount of money to help people who became suddenly underwater in their homes and were on the verge of eviction and foreclosures. And they just never got that money administrated because their priority was saving Wall Street on the grounds that, you know, the wall, their financial advisors who came from Wall Street were telling Obama that the first priority has to be to keep Wall Street afloat because that's the engine of our economy. So Wall Street, the people who caused the crisis got way better, stayed richer, got richer, while millions of people lost their homes and continued to this very day, never to have gotten out of that debt. So I never saw the Obama administration as particularly competent. Was the war in Libya an exercise of competence? Yes, we removed Gaddafi. And then what happened after? UK, France, and the US lost interest in what happened in Libya. And it was enormous chaos. It caused a migration crisis. There were open slave auctions and trading going on in Libya. There were militias and ISIS that entered Libya for the first time. So a lot of times this expectation of competence comes from the fact that they hire guys from Harvard, they hire women from Yale, they speak in a way that for educated elite journalists like us who live in large cities feels like it's the language of competence as opposed to the way that Trump talks But I think sometimes we fail to separate style from substance. And I don't think the competence and stability that we expected or some of us did was really ever there in the first place. It was just kind of a branding exercise or a posture. I totally agree with you in terms of, you know, it's very much about optics. But they've even failed that, haven't they? They've failed the optics. You've seen liberal media establishments, or maybe I'm just seeing selected clips and things, but... Even they're starting to criticize Biden's behavior. And it seems to me that the way the White House is behaving in terms of press conferences and engaging with the media, these people should be on their side, but they're not. They're suddenly sometimes starting to go against the president. And you would assume that they'd be far more pro-Democrat than they have been since Biden was elected. Yeah, so a few things about that. You're absolutely right that there's a clear shift in how the media, sort of the liberal sector of the corporate media, which is basically the entire media at this point, other than, say, Fox News and right-wing outlets, have changed their tone. I think that really only started happening in the wake of this debacle in Afghanistan. And I think the reason for that is, is because a lot of people forget that, at least in the United States, there's very little dissent in mainstream circles when it comes to foreign policy. Remember, back in 2003, 2002, 2003, obviously the Iraq War was a Republican, a conservative, a right-wing initiative, but it had the support of enormous numbers of liberals, you know, kind of Tony Blair liberals in the United States. And the reason was it wasn't Fox News convincing them to support the Iraq war, right? They didn't listen to Fox News. It was the New York Times and the New Yorker and the Atlantic who were talking to people inside the CIA and the Pentagon and believing that Saddam was on the market for nuclear weapons and had developed sophisticated biological weapons and sold the country on those claims that led to the Iraq war. Not just the Iraq war, but the broader war on terror. And that's because going all the way back to the Cold War, 
there has always been a very close relationship, a working relationship between the corporate media on the one hand and the CIA on the other. You know, in the sort of epic coups that the CIA would engineer in the 60s and 70s and 80s, overthrowing democratic governments, they would have the New York Times and Time magazine depicting it as the opposite of what it was. They would say, we overthrew this democratically elected leader, and the New York Times and Time magazine would depict it as a blow in favor of democracy, that the elected leader was a communist, was imposing dictatorship, and the right-wing leader who was unelected got installed was sort of a Democrat who was going to, you know, so there was always this propagandistic relationship And I think, of course, the media is more in favor of the Democratic Party than the Republican Party, especially after Trump. But their primary allegiance is to sort of the security state. That's who they really trust in and believe in. And a lot of their anger comes from that. And it also comes from the fact that, you know, I think we have to, again, go back to the fact that people are human. A lot of these journalists have spent 20 years traveling to Afghanistan, but specifically in Kabul. And when they go to Kabul... They work with English-speaking translators and English-speaking journalists and stringers and camera people and videographers, and you develop a friendship with those people. That's normal. And they're hearing on their WhatsApp this desperation of those people, kind of more sophisticated, educated, English-speaking people in Kabul, about their fears of the Taliban, and they're angry on behalf of those people. I think a lot of it is coming from that. So I think a big part of it is their ideology tends to be pro-war, pro-military, pro-imperialism, and they see Biden, surprisingly to them, defying all those people, rejecting their advice. They're hearing from their friends about, you know, these things that are happening. So I think that's a big part of why the media is now turning on Joe Biden. Now, I'm going to ask a question from a very British perspective, so do forgive me. In the UK, I think there's been a lot of anger from President Biden's handling of this situation He failed to consult his closest allies, not just in Britain, but in NATO. He took 36 hours even to pick up the phone from Boris Johnson, who's meant to be the United States' closest partner. 450 Brits died in Afghanistan. If you look at it pro rata in terms of the United States and the UK, we've both suffered similar casualties. I think Brits were twice as likely to die in Afghanistan than Americans. So there's a lot of anger here that we feel that we've been abandoned by the United States, not even consulted on any of these issues and being forced to rush out of Afghanistan because of that. Do you think Joe Biden has ended the so-called special relationship? Well, I, I actually, I, that, that, that's a perfect question to remind me of what I wanted to add on to the prior answer that I'll, I'll now say. And it's a very uncomfortable topic for obvious reasons. But we have to remember Joe Biden is almost 80 years old. And if you look at video of Joe Biden, even from eight years ago, when he was Obama's vice president in debates and interviews and speeches and compare it to how he speaks and behaves now, the difference is palpable. It's undeniable. It's very significant. And the reason it's uncomfortable to talk about is because one day we're all going to get old and we have relatives who get old and you feel sorry for people who you know, as they age that much, start to lose their capacity. No one's as energetic at 80. Some people are, but I don't think he is. And I think what a lot of people have forgotten is in 2019, the Democrats and their media allies were desperate to defeat Donald Trump. Desperate. It was the only thing that mattered. And when early polling started showing that of all these people who wanted to run for president, the Democratic Party, people who the media liked and thought were talented, these kind of younger names. The two leaders were Bernie Sanders, who they can't stand for ideological reasons, but then Biden sitting at the top of the polls, largely because of name recognition and the fact that people appreciated the fact that he was by Obama's side for eight years very loyally. The Democrats, not the leftists, but the Democrats were petrified that Biden was going to get the nomination by virtue of this kind of name recognition, the fact that it was just his turn. And they really believed Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Believe that he was not capable of withstanding the rigors of the election. They were they could see the cognitive decline. And they were the ones who were saying it. I have I can show you clip after clip from mainstream Democratic operatives and news outlets trying to kind of signal to Democratic voters, don't make this mistake. He can't stand up to Trump and the rigors of the campaign. I think he got very lucky, obviously perverse to talk about a pandemic being lucky, but from a perspective of Biden's political fortunes, that the pandemic basically made the campaign much lighter than it was. There were no need to go around the country having four rallies a day, the kind of exhausting schedule. He mostly stayed at home doing interviews online, eventually did a couple debates, but by and large, it really lightened the load and reduced his exposure. And I think it helped him a lot. So when it comes to things like not taking Boris Johnson's call for 36 hours, not seeming to be very present, I wonder how much of that is not about incompetence because Biden has never been somebody who would just blow off NATO allies, right? He's a very conventional American politician when it comes to foreign policy. He believes in NATO. He believes in the special relationship with the UK. I wonder how much of it is, is the fact that they're just kind of in chaos because Biden isn't Biden. And I think the emotions that you just talked about, you know, the fact that the UK was there and sacrificing British lives for all those years and then suddenly to have the prime minister of your country not even be able to get the president on the phone when already there was a lack of consultation, that anger is understandable. I just wonder what the real cause of it is. I have serious questions about that. Well, there's talk in the UK of Joe Biden being referred to as Sleepy Joe within Downing Street and other allies being concerned about the exact issue that you're raising. Do you think people in the US understand, and I know that you're in Brazil, so it's difficult for you to gauge this as much as I can engage it in London, but do you think people in the US understand the kind of anger that their allies in Britain and other places are feeling right now at being left behind in this, in this whole decision-making process? I think it's a complex question. I think one of the points Trump made for four or five years going back to the campaign and then throughout his presidency is one that in Washington has kind of been something that has been talked about for a long time. He just didn't talk about it in the open because it's not very diplomatic, which is a perception. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying a perception that the United States has borne a disproportionate and unfair share of the burden when it comes to war fighting, fighting against terrorists and keeping European allies safe. Maybe 30, 40 years ago, when the United States was the richest and most prosperous country on the planet, and there was this very prosperous middle class, and European countries were still kind of recovering from the tumult of World War II and the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union and the division of Germany, it made sense. But the reality is there are hundreds of millions of Americans, the you know middle class, which has kind of fallen. There's almost not really a middle-class lifestyle to speak of anymore in the United States. Many of them have fallen into lower middle-class status with the pandemic even worse. And what Trump did was kind of bring to the fore this idea that other countries are not carrying their weight. People see Germany, a very rich and powerful country, where we have 25 to 30,000 troops stationed in that country that was originally justified by the need to protect Germany and Western Europe from a country that no longer exists, which is the Soviet Union. And at a time when Germany, we didn't really want to have a military and when their economics are different. 
So I think that there's a big part of the United States that's more worried about the United States than about the sentiments of Western European allies who, in the eyes of a lot of Americans, just don't really pull their weight when it comes to this joint effort to try and project power of NATO in the world. So I think there's part of it that's kind of making Americans more concerned about themselves and about anger in France or even in the UK. But I also think that ingrained in the American mindset, our political mindset, is that our natural allies are with Western European democracies and this special relationship that exists and has long existed between the United States and Great Britain is something that people just naturally feel, right? We speak the same language. We're closer to one another physically than the rest of Europe. Tony Blair went to war with George Bush, had a good relationship with President Clinton. Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were famously close allies. This is embedded in our understanding of who we are as a country and what our relationship is to the world. I don't think it's at the forefront of American minds that the British feel resentful, but I definitely think it's something that is adding to the perception that Joe Biden is, in a lot of ways that's surprising to people, mismanaging what people thought would be his strong point, which is this kind of restoration of America's role in the world. Well, it's funny because one of the most extraordinary clips I've seen is Joe Biden claiming and his press secretary claiming that his allies are completely on board with this and that there's been no problems whatsoever there. And it seems very strange that he's completely allowed to get away with that by certain elements within the US media. And you make a really interesting point about overall where America's standing in the world is now. How do you view that? Do you think America is in a state of decline? Are we seeing the end of a kind of empire? You know, I think it's kind of fascinating. First of all, empires historically, despite what people often say, take a really long time to collapse, right? I mean, even the Roman Empire, when it got into what we call its late stages, still took a couple hundred years or even a few hundred years to actually collapse as an empire, as the primary imperial force. So I think oftentimes predictions of imperial demise are premature, although in the case of the Soviet Union, it was actually quite rapid, right? I mean, it was taking place over the course of a couple decades, but the actual unraveling was very fast. But there they had a rival superpower trying to make that happen. Although in the case of the United States, there's now a, a very powerful country called China that is devoted to something similar, although in using different tactics, right? Not military tactics, but economic ones. But I think what's happening politically in the United States is very interesting. Obviously, anti-imperialism has been, even in terms of the phrase, has been kind of a ideology that has been associated for decades with the American left, starting with activism and protest against the war in Vietnam, which was prosecuted primarily by two Democratic Party politicians in John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. It was a leftist movement. And then throughout the 70s with the reforms after Watergate, and then even into the 80s, the protest against Reagan's Cold War, Star Wars program, and the dirty wars in Central America. This anti-war mindset has been associated with the American left, sort of like the Noam Chomsky you know, George McGovern, a little bit less so kind of faction. And one of the things that Trump brought to the fore, but that has actually always existed in right-wing politics, I'm not sure how much people appreciate this in other places. When you go back to World War II, the primary opposition to U.S. involvement in World War II came not from the left, but from the right, the sort of America first isolationists. Some of them, because they perceived Nazi Germany as a better ally than Stalin's communism, but some of them just because they didn't think that it was the role of the United States to go save Europe or European Jews, that it wasn't really our business, this kind of isolationist strain in foreign policy that has always been on there on a certain strain of the, the right. It kind of got obliterated with 9-11, which was an actual attack on the United States. But even still, after you know a decade or so, Ron Paul, you know, this kind of traditional isolationist libertarian, made a lot of strides running in Republican strongholds in the United States with an anti-war message, running against the Iraq war, running against the war in Afghanistan, running against you know huge military budgets, saying that it's time that we get along with other nations and trade with them and not fight with them. And 
he wasn't a particularly charismatic figure, so he only made it so far, but it was kind of laying the groundwork for Trump to come. And remember, Trump in 2016 ran on a message that the wars of Bush and Cheney in the Middle East were a huge disaster, not just Iraq and Afghanistan, but Obama's wars in Syria and Libya as well. And so there has been this political transformation in the United States, this kind of realignment around the idea that military engagement and the U.S. acting as a superpower by being military engaged in the world, even though the left and the right like don't like to admit it, that they have things in common, right, because they're trained to hate one another, they do have that in common now. There's becoming this kind of strong, you can call it isolationist, anti-war, anti-imperialist, whatever label you want to put on it, it leads to the same place of America retreating from the world. And I think Joe Biden, in a lot of ways, even though he's a moderate mainstream Democrat, is also leaning heavily toward that view. And, you know, whether that means that America is declining as an empire, you could actually make the opposite case, I think. I think you could argue that these kinds of military engagements are what kill empires, right? It was the Soviet war in Afghanistan that was so costly and deadly and that caused them to unravel. And China as they love to say, invest their money, not in military engagements. You know, they probably want to take over Taiwan and control Hong Kong in their immediate neighborhood. But beyond that, they don't really have imperial ambitions with their military. They don't want to go fight wars. They want to use their money for influence in the world and to modernize China. And in a lot of ways, you could argue that withdrawing militarily will actually strengthen an empire rather than weaken it. Do you think that we should be worried about a vacuum being formed when American troops pull out of these places and America is an overall state of, let's say, military decline around the world, that there is a vacuum being formed for our rivals in Russia and China to come in and have that kind of influence that America used to have? For sure, right? When one country pulls out of a region, other countries are already looking toward how they can exploit the vacuum that is left. The question, though, is what form is that going to take? You know, we talked about how the withdrawal has been so chaotic and horrible and produced so many terrible things. What we're forgetting a lot of times is that the war that preceded it for 20 years also produced horrific atrocities. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of Afghan civilians have been killed by U.S. air raids and bombing campaigns and other military attacks. And obviously not intentionally, the U.S. wasn't targeting Afghan civilians, but they were still dying nonetheless as a result of the war. In May, three months ago, there was a hideous car bomb attack on a girl's school in Kabul where 90 kids, mostly teenage girls, were killed while the U.S. was still there. So a lot of times we can worry about what it will look like when the U.S. pulls out, but we also have to Think about what it was like when the U.S. was there. So I don't think China or Russia or Iran are looking to invade Afghanistan and occupy it militarily. For sure, they're going to be trying to influence what takes place there. But so is the United States. The United States is not turning its back on Afghanistan. We fund all kinds of groups there. We seem to have, shockingly, a constructive working relationship with the Taliban, ironically, right? The entity with which we've been at war for 20 years, both Trump and Biden are almost speaking highly of the Taliban as constructive partners. So maybe on some level, just for the sake of Afghanistan, having an end to armed conflict, perpetual armed conflict on the part of outside armies, there's not going to be complete peace in Afghanistan for a while. But at least that end of armed conflict is going to be a positive, even while there's now a kind of competition, but at least not a military or war-driven competition between a variety of countries to exert influence in Afghanistan. But that's been going on, you know, for a long time. Pakistan has enormous influence in Afghanistan. Iran has a lot of influence in Iraq and Afghanistan. So for me, yeah, I am concerned about it. But on balance, I think it's better for Afghanistan that this war finally come to an end. In terms of America's reputation on the world stage, and you may argue that this doesn't matter in practical terms, you've seen around the world people have been watching Joe Biden not only looking quite weak, let's be honest, I think look at that press conference yesterday with his head in his hands 
those images really did not personify something that was a kind of strong leader. And, you know, when you watch him speak, he's not exactly the most articulate person. Sometimes he sort of gets a bit tired or whatever. So there's that issue of Joe Biden himself looking weak, but also how the Taliban are in place, are putting demands to the United States and the United States is bending over and accepting what the Taliban is saying. So this idea that America is in decline, that the Taliban are holding America over a barrel, that Joe Biden himself looks like a weak president. And all of these things combined perhaps shows America's image in decline and its reputation in decline. Do you think that matters? And do you agree with my thesis that it's, it's a really bad look, at least? The optics are terrible. It's kind of ironic in, in a way, right? Because I agree with you that in one sense, there's a weakness Biden is projecting. But let's also look at the other side of the ledger, which is, as I said before, three presidents rode into the White House promising, swearing, vowing, no caveats to end the war in Afghanistan. Obama never really tried. He just never saw the political moment. Trump was way too weak of a president to figure out how to get around the obstacles put in his path. We forget how weak of a president Trump was in terms of his ability to implement his agenda. So much of what he said he wanted to do in speeches and on Twitter never translated into action because he had very little control over that government. For whatever else you want to say about Biden, you had enormous pressure on him, enormous pressure on him from every angle, from Democratic leadership, from Republican leadership, as you said, from the media that has long supported him and has now turned on him, from the UK, from NATO, from NGOs, from every single conceivable angle. And he said, I'm sticking by my decision. I know you want me to extend it. I don't believe in extending the deadline. That's just going to get us into conflict with the Taliban. It's going to lead to permanent occupation. That's how it works. I'm sticking to my promise. I'm pulling troops out. It's tragic what's happening, but so is the war. On some level, there's an irony that while he looks weak in one sense, and I agree with you in everything you said, you could make the argument that this is one of the most politically courageous acts that a president has taken in decades to defy the CIA and the military industrial complex, as, as Dwight Eisenhower called it, and the media and NATO. You know, I think we have to remember that this war in Afghanistan was extremely important financially to hugely powerful factions that were making enormous amounts of money. Just last night I was on Fox and I heard a 20-year veteran of Afghanistan talk about how the war basically was that, you know, we would send troops, we would send armaments to the Afghan National Security Forces. They would steal them. They would sell them off. They would break. They didn't know how to fix them. And everybody was happy because it meant we had to buy more. Or we would send really expensive tanks and missiles to Syria. They would fall into the wrong hands into ISIS. And then we would have to go bomb our own equipment and then buy more. People were making huge amounts of money on the war in Afghanistan. Biden had to summon a lot of political courage. The easiest path for him, the, the, the most fear-driven path would have been to say, I'm going to capitulate to what everyone's demanding of me. So in a sense, there is a weakness that he's displaying, but there's also a strength that maybe you have to be in favor of withdrawal to see, or maybe you have to just have like lived in the United States for so long where it's so rare for these factions to lose and for their will to be defied to see the strength that it's projecting. But, you know, look, I also do think that the United States is not as powerful as it was 20 years ago. That is the reality. China is a more powerful country economically. It has its, the ability to project its economic influence in much stronger ways in many parts of the world than the United States does. And if the United States wants to compete with China, if you want the United States and the Western alliance it leads to be able to be a viable competitor with China, some retooling is necessary. It can't just keep pouring huge amounts of money into these wars that never end while China's investing in technology and in its own country and investing in industries in Africa and Latin America that are giving it enormous influence. If you care about American strength, something has to change. In terms of accountability for the lies and what you know, referring to the first part of the interview where the CIA and the intelligence community and the military community were claiming 
so fervently that the Afghan army would survive for at least a year, maybe even longer than that, in terms of those lies, but also in terms of the waste of money. Because we're not talking about small amounts of money here. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars going into Afghanistan, trillions of dollars. People can't even imagine, I can't even imagine how much money that is in one's head. But it's a lot of money. And it seems to me to have been almost entirely wasted in terms of America's military goals or nation building or whatever the goal was. So who is going to be held accountable for this? Is anyone going to be fired or resigned? Or are there going to be any inquiries Or, I mean, in a modern-day democracy, surely someone has to take the rep for this. I mean, in theory, that's true, and I wish it were true, but everything points to the fact that it's not. Let's just pause for a moment to realize what a kind of unparalleled debacle was the war in Iraq. Whatever you think about the motives, the core premise of that war that led your country and mine to go invade and destroy and destabilize a country of 26 million people turned out to be a complete fiction. Saddam Hussein did not have an active nuclear weapons program, did not have chemical or biological weapons in any meaningful form. Whether they lied or whether they got it wrong doesn't really much matter. This enormously destabilizing war was fought in the same trillions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives when you count Iraqis, as we obviously should. And what we kind of ended up with was Iran having more influence over Iraq than it ever did before. Who's been held accountable for that? Tony Blair is traveling the world, getting as rich as you can possibly get, working for despotic governments and getting paid huge amounts of money in speeches. His reputation is in tatters in some circles, but he's still beloved by a lot of people in your country and throughout the West and even the non-West. Same with George Bush and all of those Bush officials who now are the ones who get called to major television networks and appear. Who was held accountable for kidnapping Muslims off the streets of Europe and sending them to Egypt and Syria to be tortured in the rendition program or for installing a worldwide torture regime that is clearly not just immoral, but illegal. Nobody, maybe a scapegoat here or a scapegoat there. So we have an elite class in the United States, at least, that is expert above all else at immunizing themselves from accountability even not just when they make mistakes, but even when they engage in deceit and corruption. And so my optimism about the fact that there will be any meaningful accountability for any of this is extremely low to non-existent, unfortunately. And it's a real shame on our profession that nothing has happened to all of those things you mentioned, really. And it does make me... In fact, if I could just interject there, our profession is one of the leading reasons there's been no accountability. And so... I think the media has played a large role. Our profession has played a large role in not just shielding these people from accountability, but from ensuring they're rewarded. So two quick questions before we end. So the first is on politics uh, in the United States. How does this whole situation impact the Republican Party, the Democratic Party leading into the midterms next year? You know, I really think political punctry is always hard. I think in this case, it's particularly hard. You know, one of the problems that Democrats had during the entire Trump era was that they obsessed on a scandal that almost nobody cared about other than media elites and hardcore partisans, which was Trump's alleged relationship with the Kremlin. Very few Americans, polls overwhelmingly showed over and over, cared about Putin or perceived the Kremlin to be a threat to their country. And yet they endlessly talked about it, hoping that that was going to be the, you know, kind of dagger into Trump's heart. And Trump almost won in 2020, despite every conceivable obstacle an incumbent can face from a pandemic to an economic crisis. I think Republicans might be making a similar mistake, thinking that Americans are devastated and angry about the chaos in Afghanistan. I'm sure Americans are upset seeing 13 Marines killed and seeing America humiliated. And so there clearly will be, excuse my dogs, There clearly will be some short-term political harm to Biden from a chaotic pullout. We're already seeing that. But in the long run, by the time the election rolls around, I personally have think that Americans don't care very much about how Kandahar is governed, about how Afghanistan is governed, about chaos and violence in Afghanistan. They care much, much more about chaos and violence in American cities and what's happening to their jobs. And so I'm not sure there's going to be as much political harm as might 
seem likely as now with everything unfolding. Tucker Carlson, you mentioned Fox News. You went on Fox News last night, in fact. He seems to me in the UK one of the most extraordinary and, and sort of articulate cable news hosts in America. He's absolutely fascinating. You're on Fox News all the time, it seems. Has this lost you any friends? It seems like such an extraordinary journey to go from sort of being on the left to now being a Fox News contributor. Yes, it has lost me friends, or at least, I guess you could say, media allies or supporters. I don't, you know, I don't think you lose friends over political differences. If you do, they probably weren't friends in, in the first place. But sure, of course, it's caused a lot of controversy. A lot of people who have long supported my work are disillusioned or angry. I totally understand that. But, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is there is this moment of political realignment. The reason I started writing about politics, I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't have a job at The New York Times. I was working as a a lawyer, a constitutional rights lawyer in New York. And I, in 2005, saw this war on terror that was radically transforming American society in a way I thought was extremely harmful, with very little dissent. And so I began writing about politics in opposition to these policies. And I have a passion for it and a conviction for it. Obviously, I did reporting on the excesses of the surveillance state with The Guardian. This has been a long-term project of mine. And so when I see opportunities on the right that were created by Trump or at least exploited by Trump and now by Tucker Carlson, the overwhelmingly most influential voice on the American right, who is not a partisan of the Republican Party but is exploring what has gone wrong with the ruling class. And it's leading him to a lot of the views I've long espoused about American warmongering and imperialism and the like. You know, when people got all agitated a month ago about what was happening in Havana and, you know, leaders of both parties were agitating for U.S. involvement in Cuba, the only show that aired my views and the views of others that the U.S. has no right to intervene in Cuba was Tucker Carlson, who was saying, Why is it our business how Havana is managed? Leave that to the Cubans. So for me, obviously my career and my life would be a lot more peaceful, maybe even more prosperous. If I just kept my perch as this, you know, popular leftist, kept going on leftist shows, not exploring ways to kind of explore different ways of doing politics. But I actually think it's very self-indulgent and kind of narcissistic to take that path. I genuinely believe in the views that I hold and therefore I feel morally obligated to find ways to bring them into action, to make them actually successful, make them implemented in the world because they believe society will be a better place. So when I had the opportunity to go talk to four or five million people, many of whom are open-minded and who have, you know, I've developed at least a relationship of trust with that they believe that I'm being honest even when they don't agree with me and therefore are willing to give me a hearing So often I get to go on Fox and say things that I couldn't go on and CNN and MSNBC talk about. When I was on last night, I railed against the evils of the war on terror for 20 years. Not Joe Biden's war on terror, but the establishment wings of both parties and the CIA and and the Pentagon. And so for me, it's an easy choice to try and find these wedges that are clearly arising that finally let American citizens realize that, yes, there is a right and a left and we do have conflict. But a lot of times... Those divisions are designed to keep us hating one another while ignoring this ruling class that in reality we often can and should unite against because they're the source of the real problem. Isn't it extraordinary how politics realigns? Thank you so much, Glenn, for joining us. Yeah, I really enjoyed the discussion. It was uh, really deep and, and great questions and that always makes it interesting for me. So thanks again for having me on. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.